invite you to take your Bible. hope you brought it uh, to Genesis chapter 6. By the way, if you don't have a Bible and would like one, um, come see me after the worship service, and I would love to go uh, give you a Bible. Genesis chapter 6. We're going to read verses 1 through 18. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them, and they were the heroes of old men of renown, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. And his heart was deeply troubled, so the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. And he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth, so make for yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening, one cubit high, all all around. Put a door on the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth, will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. There is so much that can be said about Genesis 6, 7, 8, um, 9, that recount the flood. Um, One of the difficulties preaching it is you can... Um, you know, you can preach for an hour on it, and that would be pretty tough on Mother's Day, right? Um, an hour sermon about catastrophic flood. Uh, so, uh, in, in our sermon today, there's going to be some things that are left unsaid, and some things that you may uh, be very interested in, because there's a lot of complex details in this story. And if you ever want to talk about some of those complex details, have questions about them, please come and 
Uh, I'd be glad to, to sit with you and talk with you and go grab coffee. Um, but some of the some of the little particular things I'm not going to mention too much in the sermon. May just mention them and that's it. Um, but I, I do want to focus on on. Um, well, I'll tell you what we're going to focus on in a second. So just after uh, just after Melissa and I uh, were married uh, back in, two, in 1999, we moved to Missouri so that I could be on uh, go to a year long internship um, at a church as a seminary student intern and. Um, Internships mean, by the way, not much pay. And pastor internships mean really not much pay. So we didn't have much money um, when we were in Missouri, but that is when our daughter Susan was born. Um, so she's 22 years old. And, um, you know, we were, we were so excited, of course. We bought a little cherry wood crib from Babies R Us, and that kind of wiped out the budget, uh, as I recall. Um, so our friends of ours who just had their second child, they gave us their bedding set for the crib, and it was still in really good condition. Now, can any of you guess, especially in light of our sermon scripture today, what the theme of the bedding set was? Noah's Ark is one of the most popular bedding sets out there. And I think on the little crib liner, uh, I think it said, and the animals went in two by two, something like that. Um, I think one of the difficulties with the story of the flood and Noah and the Ark is uh, really connecting with it today because we often think of it as a children's story, uh, which is interesting, as the other 99.9% of the animals and humans that did not go on two-by-two two in the ark were destroyed in this catastrophic flood. And um, so one, one of the things that we have to think through is, what is our takeaway from the story? Certainly it's not, ooh, this is a great story for children's bedding. That's not the takeaway. Maybe you think of the promise that God gives to Noah and his family and the animals. It's recorded in Genesis chapter 9, after the flood of waters receive and they are able to leave the ark. You might remember this promise that uh, God gives, um, where he says, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters Become a flood to destroy all life. Well, is that our takeaway? Uh, we don't have to worry about God destroying the earth with a flood again. I'm like, like, whew, well, I can, you know, I can at least check that off the list. I was worried about cosmic radiation destroying the earth and an asteroid destroying the earth and nuclear holocaust destroying the earth, but at least I don't have to worry about a flood destroying the earth. Is that our takeaway? I think there's more that we can take away from this story of um, of Noah and the ark. Um, and, and I want to look at this in three categories that we've actually mentioned before in terms of Bible study. Three great questions to ask as you study the Scriptures. What does the story say who we are? What does the story say about who God is? And what does the story say about how we are to then live? So 
who we are, who God is, and how we are to live. Uh, the story of the flood is an important moment in a, in a storyline that actually begins in Genesis chapter 2. So we're going to go through a few verses from the, the chapters of Genesis that we've skipped over. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, last week um, we read this verse, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now that that prohibition sets up the drama that's in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3, the woman, whose name is Eve, is tempted by the serpent. And the serpent asked, okay, did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Eve confirmed, yep, that's right. We cannot eat from this tree right here in the center of the garden. And if we do... We will die. Then the serpent said, no, 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 you won't die. You'll be like God. And then we get to verse 6 of chapter 3. Really important verse. This is what it says. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. And this is really important to notice. The fruit was very pleasing. It was good to eat. Eve saw this is good to eat. It's good for acquiring wisdom. So in other words, the fruit wasn't poisonous. It's not like God said, okay, I created this beautiful garden for you and live and enjoy, but i got to tell you, I made one mistake. And let's see that little... Crazy-looking tree over there. It's kind of sickly-looking. Don't eat from it because it's poisonous. You'll die if you eat from the tree. I kind of messed up on that one. That is not how it went down. The fruit was good to eat and good for gaining wisdom. (laughs) It wasn't poisonous. She Here's the point. She was to obey God and not eat the fruit simply because God said it's off limits. That is not for you to eat. This is my garden. I give it all to you to eat. That tree is mine. I do not give that fruit for you to eat. She was to obey simply because God said that is off limits. It's not yours to take. And Eve and Adam, they take it anyway. And that's really important because what we see is this pattern that builds throughout the next several chapters in Genesis. Chapter 4 tells the story of Cain and Abel, the two sons of Adam and Eve. Cain is extremely jealous of Abel because Abel is receiving the favor of the Lord, the story tells us. Many of you know the story. Cain gets so jealous, he murders his brother Abel. Here's chapter 4, verse 10. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. So notice what makes this so grievous. Cain, it's not your blood. That wasn't your blood. Whose blood is it? Well, it's his brother's blood. 
your brother's blood, it's Abel's blood, your brother's blood cries out to me, God says. Now, I want you to know something even more fundamental. The blood was crying out to God. Why? Because ultimately, the blood belonged to God. After the flood, God says something really interesting to Noah. God uh, sent the flood. Why? Well, for the human race's complete disregard for life. So, this is what God tells Noah after the flood, after the flood waters had receded. Chapter 9, verse 5. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Now, how can God demand an accounting for someone else's blood being shed? God can do that because ultimately that lifeblood belongs to God. Life belongs to the Lord. This is the primary issue that we see throughout Genesis chapter 3, 4, 6, 7, 8, as we go through the flood. Cain takes Abel's life, but that blood was off limits to you, Cain. It's not yours. It belongs to God. Now, let's get back to Genesis chapter 6. We read this, verses 1 and 2, very beginning of the chapter. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were very beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Now, this is one thing I'm just going to mention. Who the sons of God is, there's some question about exactly who that is referring to. Um, and it's kind of fun to think through that. But I want to, I want to focus actually at the end of that verse, and they married any of them they chose. You see this pattern. These people, Genesis says, are the sons of God. They see women, and they start grabbing any of them they choose. This is the trend that we see in Genesis, and it has to do with human sin. What is sin? Well, sin is disobedience against God, but I want to give you two important um, statements about sin, what we see about sin in these chapters, uh, Genesis 6, well, these chapters we've been looking at at the beginning of Genesis. Number one, sin results when we ignore limits that God sets. There is this fundamental struggle we see in the Bible, and it starts in the Garden of Eden. Many Christians have noticed that uh, the Garden of Eden is like a probationary period for Adam and Eve, and it's been described as a probation. Uh, probation coming from the word to, to prove or proof or probe. God was putting Adam and Eve to test to see if they would trust him. As he says, this tree, yeah, the fruit, it's good. It'll taste good if you put it in your mouth but it's off limits. 
God was testing to see if Adam and Eve would trust him and put him first. Second thing about sin, sin results when I claim for my own what is not mine. The forbidden fruit that belonged to God. Adam and Eve took it. Took what God, what is God's, and God said, it's not for you. Abel's life, blood, belonged to God. Cain took it. The daughters of men mentioned at the beginning of Genesis, they belonged to God, Genesis 6, they belonged to God, and the men were just taking whoever they wanted to as a wife. Sin happens when we decide for ourselves what we can do with our lives, when we take this attitude, this life belongs to me, my life belongs to me, I can do with it what I choose. Instead of listening to God, because if Abel's lifeblood belonged to God, who does your lifeblood belong to? It belongs to God. And there's so many ways that we can apply this, can't we? Do we listen to what God says about human sexuality, first and foremost? Or do we say, hey, it's my life, God. I can do with it as I please. Do we... Listen to what God says about our possessions, what to do with our income, our stuff, our possessions. Or we say, this is mine, God. I deserved it. I earned it. I can do with it as I please. How we use our words. Do we use our words to add to life, add to someone else's life, or do we use our words to tear down someone else and say, God, I... I'm a free human being. I can do whatever I want to. I can say whatever I want to. And this is why sin is so attractive and so easy to commit. As we love to say, at least, at least of our own selves, ah, I've got something. It's mine. My life is mine. I am my own master. So one of the most important things about this story is we don't excuse ourselves from it. We don't think, yeah, boy. The world was really bad back then. Good thing it's not bad now. People were really bad back then. Good thing I'm a lot better than they are. We can't disconnect ourselves from the story. We have a role in the flood. All right, next question. Who is God? Uh, who is God is of much more importance in this story, by the way, than even than who we are. Who we are is pretty important. Who God is is even more important. And if you look at the story, it's really interesting. Um, how many speaking lines does Noah get in this story? Zero. Noah's never talking in this story. <laughs> Noah has an important part. God has even a more important part in this story. Uh, Noah may be our representative in our story, um, but... But God is his God and his actions are the focus of this story. So what does God do? Uh, one of the more difficult verses in chapter six is uh, verse six, God's response when he sees all this wickedness. So let's look at verse six. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. And that word regretted it is notoriously difficult to know exactly what it means. If you look at how that word is used in, in the Bible, it's used in lots of different ways, and there's lots of different English words that get used to 
translate the word regretted. Um, but I think we can at least know what it doesn't mean. That word does not say that um, that God made a mistake. And then he said, whew, I really blew it on that one when I created those human beings. That's not what it means. Um, doesn't mean that God was saying, oh boy, in hindsight, that was a pretty bad decision of mine. Let's correct it. That's not what it means. Um, it doesn't mean that God is kind of wishy-washy, always changing his outlook on things. That is not what regretted means. So let's talk about what it does mean. God is moved by pain and sin when he sees the pain going on in the world. He's moved. What does that say about God? Well, it means that we don't have a stoic God that's in charge of the universe. We don't have a God who's like the, you know, the Hollywood dad who's just sitting on the comfy chair watching TV and the kids come up to him and he's shooing them away. Get away, kids. I don't, don't bother me right now. That's not God. God is the one who sees. Look at verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And just like God saw the goodness of the world in Genesis chapter 1 as he creates it, God sees the evil intent of the human heart. And he's moved by it. So God is moved by pain and sin. And God demonstrates he is a God of justice and mercy. He's merciful. So when people cry out to him because they are the victims of injustice, God really hears and really cares and it bothers him deeply. Why? Because God is the God of life. He wants life, not death for people. Life belongs to him. And when that life is trampled on, he has a merciful heart towards those who suffer and a merciful heart. That merciful heart of him leads God to judge and to bring justice. And when I was thinking through this, I thought of... um, one of the uh, the great preachers of the early church, his name was John Chrysostom, and we actually have more of John Chrysostom's sermons than any other preacher from the early church. I'm talking like third or fourth century guys. John Chrysostom was the bishop of Constantinople. And those of you who know your history know that Constantinople was this city that was that was started by Emperor Constantine. He said, I want a city... And I want this city to be a great city. It's going to be a tribute to me. And so Constantinople was, it was an opulent city. There was a lot of luxury in Constantinople. There was a lot of over-the-top parties in Constantinople. It was a happening place, very much metropolitan. Now, John Chrysostom was the bishop of Constantinople. And he was a great preacher. He had a great nickname. You know, if there's, if there's a, um, like an, like an ace baseball pitcher, that pitcher may have like a nickname, golden-armed or something like that. 
Well, John Christensen's nickname was Golden Mouthed. He was the Golden Mouth. That's, that's describing just the great sermons he would preach. But it's interesting. He didn't preach sermons that would just tickle your ear. He just didn't tell you what you wanted to hear. In fact, usually when he was preaching, he was telling you stuff you didn't want to hear. So he's preaching in Constantinople, this, this city of opulence. And i got to read you some of the things that John Chrysostom preached in the pulpit. A little bit of summary, but a lot of these are his words. So um, one thing he preached, um, <laughs> your gold objects and adornments. Okay, he went on a little bit more about the gold. But the gold that you possess, um, your gold stuff means that you are robbing the orphan and starving the widow. That's a good Sunday morning sermon for you. He says, when you are dead, by the way, you have these luxurious mansions. Well, when you're dead, people will walk by your mansion and ask, how many tears did it take to build that mansion of yours? How many orphans were stripped? How many widows were wronged? Golden mouth? He really preached it. And it actually got him in hot water with the wealthy of the, of the city. And it may come across as a bit dramatic as we listen to that. But he raises an important point. Sometimes my sin isn't so much the actions that I'm committing, but rather my inactions. Um, when there's really that, that orphan or that widow, and I'm, I just don't want to think about that. I don't want to think about that need. Just block it out. Let me go on with my life. God, uh, John Chrysostom and Hisham, and this story of the flood. Um, it makes us ask this question, am I doing enough to help those who are suffering near me? Because God's heart of mercy goes out to the suffering. And in his judgment, he is finding me to be some part of the, not the solution but of the problem. Some part, this sin in me that says, this is mine. I think there's a couple of applications that come to mind. Real real quick on this. um, I thought of, uh, I read something about Dusty Baker. This is the kind of funner one. Um, Dusty Baker, manager of the Houston Astros. Um, You know, he just won his 2000th career game. And... And Dusty Baker's he's a seems to be a very God-loving Christian. And he he wrote or he's quoted as, you know, oh I you know, I thank my mom, all my family members, but most of all, I thank God for this wonderful opportunity. This wonderful opportunity to to live my life in this, to have this this job. And I thought well, that's kind of a neat thing to say. But then I thought, well, can't we all say that about our our work? God gives us, your life belongs to him. He has given you this work to do. Can't we all say, thank you, God, for this wonderful opportunity. You have, you have given me life, and now you've given me a way for me to, to make this a better place, right? Through my work. That's one way we can apply this. God has meant you to be a blessing for others, and he's given you work to do to bless others. Another application. Um, 
the leaked Supreme Court document this past week brought a lot of attention to abortion. And the story of the flood should make us pause and think about God's supreme value that he puts on life. I mean, see, see posters out there that say, essentially, this is my life and I get to do with it as I please. These early chapters from Genesis show us, no, no, life belongs to God. And we should look on with grave concern any viewpoint that says, I've got the right to do with what, uh, I've got a right to do with what I wish with another person's life that belongs to God. I have to always think, what is God asking me to do with this life that he has given me? Because my life is not my own, but it's a gift from God to me. And he wants me to use it to help life flourish. God sees the wickedness and he judges that. He shows mercy. He saved Noah and his family. He could have just wiped everyone off the board, just started from complete scratch. He didn't. And finally, what do we see about God in the story? If we do not have a God of judgment, we cannot have a God of love. If God were to see the evil inflicting damage on human life that belongs to him and that he loves, and if God were just to sit by and do nothing, then he wouldn't be loving. Now, many people think that God just doesn't act fast enough. Come on, God, you see the evil going on. Why don't you act fast and put an end to it now? Listen, God is merciful too, right? As he administers justice, he desires all to come to repentance and none to perish, the Bible tells us. But one day there will be ultimate judgment from God where all human beings stand before God for him to judge. But I don't even think that's the most important part of the story. This is God's judgment fell upon his son, Jesus Christ. God laid the sins of humanity on him, and Jesus Christ took the punishment. You know, let me take you to one of the details uh, after the flood. Several commentators have made the observation about this, the sign of the, the covenant in, in Genesis uh, chapter 9. Remember the, remember the sign God said, I'm going to put a sign in the sky. What's that, what's that sign? A rainbow. And the language that God really uses, or that is given to God here by Moses, uh, wrote this. The language says, God put his bow in the sky. The word for the weapon, like a bow, like a bow and arrow bow, a weapon. And, and the commentators say the bow, which way is it pointing? It's pointing upwards, not, not, not downwards. God's sign is that he will not aim his arrow at the world again. Instead, he's going to aim it up at himself. And that is exactly what happened on the cross. The sentence for our sins was paid by God's Son. That sentence of death was paid by God's Son himself. The arrow was pointed upwards. 
Now that, that alone right there requires a response from us. So third question about this story, how are we to live? The story is not in the Bible so that we can think, oh, that's a nice story. That's a, that's a nice story. Someone should put that on some children's bedding. There's a response from us. One, remember that God remembers you. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. This is while the flood waters are still covering the earth, and there's the ark, and there's Noah and the ark and his family. And Genesis chapter 8, verse 1 says, But God remembered Noah. And it's an interesting verse, isn't it? Why is it put like that God remembered Noah? It's not like God was looking down. Whoo, boy, there's a lot of water down there. Wait, the ark, Noah! Like some Home Alone moments, you know. Ah! The word remember comes up again in Genesis chapter 9 when God remembers the covenant that he made with Noah and Noah's family. A covenant, what is it? It's a promise. God remembers his promise. God will always hold his promises of utmost importance to himself, and he will keep his promises to you. That is what is meant by God remember Noah. Of course God was going to protect Noah. Does that mean anything to you? God will remember his promises. It meant a whole lot to to the New Testament church. Let me read you something that Peter, the disciple Peter, wrote about the flood. How How did Peter... The disciple, as he wrote First Peter, Second Peter, these letters. How did he use the flood in it? Let's look at this scripture from Second Peter, chapter two. I'll read a little bit, then I'll put a verse on the screen. Second uh, Peter two, verse five. If God did not spare the ancient world when He brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot at the same time, a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, then verse 9, here's on the screen for you. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. So how does this story encourage us to live? Remember that God, boy, he knows how to rescue his people from trials. And if things seem like they are coming undone around you, just like the world was coming undone with the flood, if things seem like they are coming undone around you, maybe something with your employment, Maybe a class at school that just near the end of the year and it hadn't gone well. Maybe a relationship. It seems, God, this is just coming undone. I I can't take it. If things are upending around you, know that God knows how to rescue you. And then there's another thing for us to think about this morning. It's the second part of verse 9. The Lord knows how to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. 
See, on our own, we are unrighteous. That's what Genesis chapter 3 through 8, chapters 3 through 8 lay out for us. We're unrighteous. I mean, Noah was described as a righteous person, but we know you, you read a little bit longer later and you know, Noah wasn't purely righteous. Noah may, um, you know, may have comparatively been pretty righteous, but no, he, he, he still had that sin in his heart. We still claim for ourselves what God has said is off limits. We do that. And human life has suffered in part because of Greg Brady's actions. I can say that. But I can have Christ's perfect righteousness imputed to me, given to me, placed on me. God's, Jesus' perfect righteousness. See, Noah, Noah wasn't perfectly righteous, but Christ is. Christ is the perfect Noah. And the Bible tells us if you put your heart's trust in Christ, you don't have to fear that punishment because Christ has already suffered it on our behalf. So the other thing to think about this morning is how are you in your relationship with Christ? Have you trusted Christ in your heart? God invites us this morning to to say yes, to say yes, we trust Christ, and to receive Christ's righteousness. And then we know that God is not against us. He is for us. He's for us. And then we can trust in that promise that God knows how to rescue his people from trials. God is jealous for his people, his children. Let's take a moment to just reflect on our heart with the Lord, our relationship with Christ. And if you haven't put your trust in Christ, you can do that this morning. And Jesus says, I will never forsake you. I will never leave you. I will always love you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love. And we thank you that in your love, you've given us the gift of life and your life fills this world. We remember what you told the first human beings to be fruitful and multiply, and you want this world teeming with life. You told the animals, fill the world, be teeming. Thank you for your life. Help us to live in a way that honors the life that belongs to you and enhances it and blesses us, blesses it. Thank you that you've given us the opportunity to, whether it's our work or whether it's to be a good friend, whether it's to share our faith, whether it's to say words that bless someone. And you've given us opportunities to, to bring life and not death into this world. Help us to live in a faithful way to you. In Jesus' name, amen.